welcome, welcome, welcome back again to Vetfolio Voice. In this episode, I'm joined by someone who, no matter what the situation, always seems to say exactly what I'm needing to hear in that moment, and that is Dr. Andy Rourke. This episode was recorded live at VMX, and as I've mentioned earlier in the year, these live interviews are some of my very favorites. I love being face-to-face with such amazing people and just the amount of energy and fun that that brings to these interviews. And in addition to having the opportunity to speak face-to-face during this talk, we were also lucky enough to be joined by many of you out there because this interview was recorded live on the soundstage in the Expo Hall at VMX. So if you're catching this for the second time, hope it's everything that you remember. Please be aware that there may be some additional sound, some noise in the background, just due to the nature of an onstage recording. But our awesome team of editors does a great job of making sure that we really get some good quality audio. We started out talking about paths for growth in veterinary clinics, kind of outside what we've seen in the past, which has been moving into a management role or specializing. And those may not be the right paths for many veterinary professionals out there. And if you are a veterinary professional, especially, you know, at a clinic who doesn't want to move into management and who doesn't want to specialize, you should still see a path forward in your career where you can continue to grow, continue to thrive and continue to develop your skills. And of course, I put any pre-planned roadmap of questions away after about five minutes because just as Andy and I had expected, our conversation quickly veered away from any questions we may have considered ahead of time and just, you know, really turned into a very candid talk. I don't want to give any more away here because it really was such a wonderful conversation. So let me go ahead in case you don't know who Dr. Andy is, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him and then we'll jump into our episode. Dr. Andy Rourke is a practicing veterinarian, international speaker, author, and media personality. He's the founder of the Uncharted Veterinary Conference and DrAndyRourke.com. He's been an award-winning columnist for DVM360, and his popular Facebook page, website, podcast, and YouTube show reach millions of people every month. Dr. Rourke has received the NAVC Practice Management Speaker of the Year Award three times, the WVC Practice Management Educator of the Year Award, the Outstanding Young Alumni Award from the University of Florida's College of Veterinary Medicine, and the Veterinarian of the Year Award from the South Carolina Association of Veterinarians. His greatest achievement, however, involves marrying a badass scientist and raising two kind and wonderful daughters. All right, I promised you a great talk and it will deliver. Let's go ahead and get into it. Well, I'm excited to wrap up these live sessions with the always fun and insightful Dr. Andy Rourke. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to kind of dive into this topic related to an article you wrote in the upcoming issue of Today's Veterinary Business called Sharing Your Crystal Ball. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to get a sneak peek at that article and read it ahead of time. It's got a great message. So will you talk to us about the article and the messaging and the inspiration behind it? Yeah, sure. The uh, The idea of sharing your crystal ball is this. Um, if you if you want to keep people engaged in your practice and you want to make them feel like there's a future for them, they have to be able to look into the future and say, I, there's a path for me. 
And so, um, and so sharing your crystal ball is about talking to people about their future and where you see their future. And you have to do it in a certain way because we, we don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And you can set expectations that then you don't meet and people are upset because, hey, you said I would get this opportunity or, hey, you said I would get to do this thing and I didn't get to. And so you, you really got to be careful about, about setting those expectations. And that's why I think a lot of people lean back because they're like, I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm, I don't want to talk to people about where they're going, what I see them doing. But I'll tell you that the saddest things that happened to me in my career, uh, I, I, was, I was at the clinic and there was this technician who I, I really felt had a, a very bright future on the floor. And she came to me and, and she said, you know, I think I'm going to leave. Uh, and, and I said, you're going you're gonna to leave the practice? And she was like, I think I'm going to leave vet medicine. And I said, well, why? And she said, well, I don't want to be Sandy. And I said, well, what do you mean when you say you don't want to be Sandy? Now, Sandy was a surgery technician at our practice, right? And she had been there for like 30 years. And uh, she'd always been the, the head surgery tech for like 30 years. And this technician said to me, she said, Sandy's been doing the same thing every day for 30 years. And I don't want that to be my life. And I don't want to be Sandy. And so I think I'm going to leave. And, and ultimately, we, we talked a bit about kind of what her options were and you know some people really like routine and they like to stay where they are but I, I think one of the greatest problems that we have in vet medicine especially in retaining our technicians that are so vital is there's got to be a path forward like nobody wants to stay stagnant where they are everybody like we're a profession of learners and growers and people who want to who want to be challenged right and so I don't want to be sandy to me means I don't see a path forward for me I don't see right. challenges for me and so when we talk about sharing our crystal ball we need to it, it all depends to uh, some degree on who, who we're talking to and, and what they want and what they value and, and what excites them. But at some point, we, we've got to peer into the uncertain future with them and say, this is the path for you. This is the new, fresh path for you. And, and this is kind of where I can see you going. And I just think that that's absolutely mission critical in staying engaged for a lot of people. And so anyway, I just, I think that we have not done that well in vet medicine in general. I don't think we've done that well with associate vets. We've told associate vets, hey, the path for you is practice ownership. And that's not really the path anymore. Um, and there's a lot of people who are great associate vets and they never wanted to own a practice, but that was the only next step that they had. And I, and I think that, that, that that's flawed. And the same thing, especially with my technicians, we say, well, hey, you're an assistant, go get your CVT, go get your LVT, and then they do, and then we make them do the same job they were doing before they got their CVT or LVT. That doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, we say, well, what's the path for, for a, a technician, a licensed technician, a, a loud and proud licensed technician? It's to become the practice manager. And you go, those things are not remotely the same. Like, nothing about being a kick-ass technician makes you ready to manage a, a, a building or a team. Like, not that that's bad. I love managers. It's just they ain't the same. And like the idea that you got to go from here, the next step is this. That's a problem. The other alternative we see is industry. It's like, oh, man, you're a phenomenal technician. You should leave and go and work in uh, industry. And again, no shade on industry at all. But I think that you see techs going into management as a default and you see them going into industry as a default because they don't see a path that keeps them actually on the floor learning and growing and developing and getting better. And I think that that is a fundamental problem that we have to address in vet medicine. Right, yeah, basically to say either go into management or leave are not good options to be the only options going forward. I think of kind of an analogy that 
I think of in the form of a joke from a comedian. I promise it won't sound like a joke because you have to get it in context. But basically, he says, if I was a really good cook, it wouldn't really be fair to say, great, you're a great cook. Can you farm? Yeah. Like, no, those are completely different skill sets. So why are we trying to transition these technicians into management positions unless that's something that they really want with sure. appropriate training? Well, th there's, a, there's a need for it, right? Like we all, we, all, we all want to work for a good boss, which means somebody has to step up and be a good boss or somebody has to step up and, and be a good manager. Um, and so it's, it's, it, there's definitely a need and we look around and we look and we have highly competent people and we say, I think you could do this job if you wanted to. So I, I, it comes from a good place, but I, I mean... We all know veterinarians that did not want to own the building and didn't want to own the business, but the, the other vet they worked for retired and everybody needed jobs. So somebody's got to own this thing. And that's how they became a practice owner. And that, like, that was our culture in medicine for a long time. Again, it, it's not coming from a bad place. Uh, and, and it should be flattering if you're, you know, you're a tech or you're uh, an assistant, associate doctor, and somebody says, I think you would be a wonderful leader. Like you should be proud of that, but also, it doesn't make a, a, a ton of sense. And again, I the thing I love the most about the medicine is, you know, it's a house with a million rooms. And like, you know, my career is, has been a, a picture of that, of just finding these kind of weird things to do and then doing something else and doing something else and doing something else and still being able to come back and practice. And, and it's just, I think that that's one of the joys of medicine, but a lot of people don't see that. And so we talk about sharing a crystal ball. Like we, need, we need to show them what that path is, right? We need to show them the other rooms besides moving off of the floor into something that's, that's not really what you're passionate about or excited about. And so the way that we do it is, is pretty specific. So when I started to talk about showing people your crystal ball, I think we need to be having more developmental conversations with people. And I think the leaders that we currently have need to get a little bit better and not when we have our one-on-ones or we, we do our, our, our sort of development meetings, it shouldn't be so much about giving feedback on what happened in the past as much as it's talking about where I see you going or what your opportunities are going forward. And so just think about it for a second. Um, if I was going to give you feedback and I could come to you and I could say, hey, last week, I don't think your animal handling skills were where I wanted them to be. And I, I'm, I didn't feel like you were as patient as you could have been. And, and we need to work on that. That feels pretty bad, doesn't it? I'm glad that they said it. I, give me feedback. I, I want to have it, but it doesn't feel good. Versus if I come to you and say, I want to talk to you about kind of where I see you going in, in 2024. And, and I, I really like, for, I think the area of focus for you is going to be in animal handling and low stress handling. I think that there's an opportunity for you to grow here, to pick up these skills, to improve. And I would like to invest in, in training for you. I think in that area is an area that's going to really help you and is going to move you forward and keep you learning in a way that's going to be really valuable to the team. How does that sound? And doesn't that feel much better than I think your animal, animal handling skills are weak and I saw them last week and we need to fix them versus I see an opportunity for us to go forward together. And this is how I think we could kind of use you. It's also sharing the crystal ball is to say, hey, you know, I don't know what will happen or what sort of the promises is, but I want you to know that I see you as a very strong communicator and a really good leader. And if you wanted to take on some leadership responsibilities, if you were interested in becoming our head CSR, our, our lead technician, I, I think that those are skills that we could start to train towards if that was something you were interested in. How does that feel? Are you interested in something like that? And do you see how I'm painting a picture of where we, we could go? Isn't that engaging? You know, when we start to talk about like, you, what, what it looks like to continue to be into the, into, in, the, in the practice. And it's not, hey, I really think you'd be great in industry. It's, hey, I really think that as we learn and grow, these are the opportunities. And I, and I see these paths, we start talking about sharing your crystal ball. There's, there's a couple of different ones. There, there, there's a, there are medical paths. 
And then there are, there are leadership management communication paths. And I think that we can really look at people and talk to them about what they like. But I, I think that there's, there's so much opportunity to develop these areas out of, hey, let's, let's look together at where we ought to go. And this is the area of opportunity I really think that you could grow in. Or these are strengths that I think you have that I would really love to see you continue to develop because I think you could be exceptional in this area. And I'm really giving this person feedback on what they've, what they've already done. But boy, it feels so much better than, hey, these are your big three weaknesses and these are your two big strengths that I saw in the last year. It's just, it's a different type of conversation, but it's the changing from a critical conversation, which is past tense, to a developmental conversation that's future facing. And again, I always couch this with, we don't know what the future is, but this is kind of where I, I would like us to try to go or where I see us going in the next three months, six months, 12 months, something like that. And then it's starting to get into the skills of like, what do they want to learn and what would be valuable for us to learn? And I need to put words to those things or else they're still kind of lost about where I'm trying to get them to go. If only there was like a course or a certificate <laughs> or something like that that taught about, you know, giving feedback and growing your team and, you know, retention and all these different things. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, so over the last couple of years, I have been working with lots and lots and lots of, of hospital leaders and multi-hospital leaders on how to really make their practices run and how to make them be very high-functioning, performing practices with really good culture. Really good culture is important yeah. to me. And so I, I put myself to a challenge uh, about a year ago and I thought to myself, I wanted to sit down and I wanted to try to grow someone and show them like, a path for development that would involve them leading or managing other people. And the truth is we, we've always done this thing in our, in our practice where you said, you're the best tech, you're now in charge of managing other human beings, which again, it doesn't make any sense. Those are not the same things. And we throw them in the deep end, sink or swim, figure this out. And that's never made any sense to me. And so I, I sat back like about a year ago and I was like, okay, I have taught literally thousands of, of doctors and, and, and techs and lead techs and practice managers medical directors and owners and, 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 and what are the things that I genuinely truly believe that anyone who's leading or managing other people should be trained on. And I came up with about eight hours and it's, it's all broken up, but basically you, you've got to be able to build and maintain trust with people. Everything we do is built on trust. That's how you're effective in the exam room. That's how you get doctors to delegate to you so you can do things. It's how you can get your uh, technicians to jump in and perform for you. It's, it's how you can get people to be vulnerable and honest and to ask for feedback and to listen to feedback and take it. It all has to be done inside the context of trust. We have to trust each other. And so trust building is important. There's basics of strategic planning. When we talk about, when I talk about strategic planning, I talk about where we're trying to go, but a lot of times I talk about who we are and like, what are our values, right? Are we a practice that's built on the highest standards of patient care? Or are we built on, uh, on supporting our community or keeping care uh, affordable and accessible? Or are we lifelong learners? Or are we uh, customer service champions who make the patient and the client experience the best it can possibly be? You can be any of those things, but you can't be all those things. It's not right or wrong, but if I know who I want to be and who my team wants to be, we can come together and say, guys, how do we, how do we live these values, right? We say compassion is what we care about. Is it really? Tell me about a time in the last two weeks you saw someone on our team actually demonstrate compassion. And guys, that's a powerful conversation to have because it really does make people say, well, Cassie did this yesterday and that's us living our values. And man, there's great pride in that. 
But if you can talk to people about values and understand the values of your team, you can really start to decide where you're going as a team in a way that people buy into. And so team buy-in is another part of it. There's so many people show up and try to tell other people what to do, and that's not motivating at all. We need to show up and talk to people about what their problems are, or what the pain points are, or what's not working in our practice, or what we'd like to see better. And then we need to come to work together with our teams and ask them, do you guys have solutions? What do you think we should do about this? And listen to them because they, they're on the ground and on the floor and they, and they know what the pain is. And if they come up with the solutions, they'll own those solutions and they'll be their solutions. And it's so much better to get a solution that your team comes up with because it's theirs than it is this great idea that you have that you try to get them to do. And so team buy-in is just so important. Nobody tells us how to give feedback. Nobody tells us how to say, hey, I need you to do that a little bit differently for me. And it's a weird, awkward conversation and our profession is so like adverse to, uh, to conflict. There's so many of us who don't like conflict. I'm one of them. But there's a really good way to say to people, hey, I need you to do this a little bit differently and say it in a way that's not bringing conflict, you know? But nobody tells us how, how to do that. It's just this simple thing. The fact that we talk about feedback and everybody thinks it's negative, that just is insight into like, this is a problem. Because when we, I always say, you know, I don't care who you are, you're a simple animal. We're all simple animals. And guys, we know how to train simple animals and it's positive reinforcement. And so if I want to train my, my bad dog Skipper Rourke to do something, I don't wait until he messes up and yell at him. That, that, that's dumb, it's not good for him, it's not good for me. I figure out how to start catching him doing what I want and I, how to reinforce it, right? And I'm there and positive reinforcement and positive reinforcement and positive reinforcement. Guys, that works on us. But so many of us, we just think about, when we talk about giving feedback, we immediately think about negativity. We can do so much to lead and grow people with positive feedback, but you just have to know how to do it and you have to just decide to lean into it. You gotta learn how to set priorities. Like so many of us are trying to do all the things and you can't do all the things. You've gotta be able to look at your day and say, this is ridiculous, not all this is gonna happen. And so what are we gonna do? And what are we not going to do? When was the last time you stopped doing something in your practice? We, like we keep adding things to it, but we, did, we never like, you know what? That's, that's, we're gonna stop doing this. And that's a problem, but that's priority setting. And so like, those are the types of things that are in the leadership essentials course. Cause like, you gotta have those skills to get people to, to grow and be comfortable leading. And like, I don't, it's, just, it's one path, but it's a path that I think can make people really comfortable. I, I really think Cassie, I'm sorry, I sort of, I'm fired up about this now. But no, I, it's, a, it's a great course. I was gonna say, I've, I've done many of the lectures in the course. And, you know, I think what made me think of it just then was your talk about forward-facing uh, feedback and making it future-oriented. That made a lot of sense. And then, you know, setting priorities and things. I'm going, what do you mean? It's not good to just, like, make this huge list of priorities that you can't get done and then beat yourself up at the end of the day that you didn't do anything effective when really you did a lot of things. Well, I, I'll give you a silly example. It's like, so I'm a to-do list guy, right? Like, I, I, I like to make to-do lists. But I always get up and I'll keep the to-do list. And the to-do list will have 19 things on it. And at the end of the day, I feel like a failure every day because there's no way I'm gonna do 19 things. If I do three things off my list, especially big things, that's a great day. But I don't look at it that way. I have this list of 19 things, I do three things and feel like a failure and it's this, this, this dumb. And so I think that type of clarity of saying, all right, let's be realistic about what we're doing today and what we're gonna push off and plan to do tomorrow. And if I say, well, these are the three things I'm doing today and then I'm gonna move in and do some other stuff tomorrow and then I do the three things, I feel like I succeeded. But a lot of that is just picking that thing and putting it forward. But again, it's, um, I think a lot of us, I think a lot, and this comes from old school practice, but 
a lot of us came from a, a get it done culture. Right. And like that's 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 where I came yeah. from. It's like hey, we just get we get it done. The clients come in and we get it done. And that works when you're not overwhelmed in how busy you are. You know what I mean? But a lot of us got pushed past capacity and the get it just get it done. You can keep that up for a day when you're overwhelmed and maybe a week and maybe a month, maybe three months, but ultimately you're gonna break. You can't just get it done when you when when the pets don't stop coming in. At some point you gotta make hard choices. I'm I'm all about us helping other people. Like God, that's the meaning of, of all of this is is how do we help other people? How do we make a positive difference? But I think the hard realization I came to in my life, I went through a period of burnout in my early 40s. You can't pour from an empty cup. Like you, you, you've got to still give to people, but you have got to give with intention. You have to say, this is what I can do, or this is what I can do today. And that has to be enough. And I am better off calling it here and coming back tomorrow ready to go again than I am pushing back and coming back tomorrow being tired being resentful because I'm tired of being away from my house or my kids or whatever. But it, but it's that it's that type of priority setting. It's, it's not easy. And there's ways to do it, right? It's not just how do I feel today? It's what is important? What is important to our mission? What is important to the values? What is important to my team? What is important to my clients? What What is the easy thing that I can do that will have a big impact for my team or for my patients or for our community? Like it's, it's picking those types of things. What is the thing that if I do it, then that frees up other people so that they can then go and work independently and we can get so much more done. I call that the closed door model where you look and you say, uh, if, I, if everything I have to do is a door, how many people are standing outside of each door? I want to open the one that has the most people standing outside of it because all those people can then go forward and do the stuff beyond that door on their own. And the impact of what we do is much bigger. But it, it's, it's just having some strategies like that you can look through and say, how do I pick these things off of this list? And I don't know, again, I don't think anyone sets down with most of us and says, let's go through your options on how you can decide what you're going to do today. Yes. And, you know, once again, here we are talking. I feel like every time we talk, I'm, it's exactly what I need to hear and what I need to talk about. But I will avoid monopolizing, like, tell me more about priority setting and how I can do it better <laughs> and pivot back to um, to growing people. Because I think when we when we exercise these types of strategies, we're talking about growing that team, team retention, team buy in. So now, you know, we've done this and we've got our team buy in, but there's still the, the Sandy factor, we will call sure. it. Mm -hmm. So. How, you know, once we get that buy-in, how do we then grow our team members without that transition to management, that transition to industry or specialty or whatever it may be? Yeah. So, so one of the really reasons, and we'll go back to, to, to sharing your crystal ball. One of the reasons I really love this is, I, is, is when I start to do something like this, I'm giving this forward-facing feedback, okay? And I'm saying, hey, this is, this is kind of where I can sort of see you going in the next year. What do you think about that? Do you like that? And they would sort of say, oh, yeah, I do like this or I don't. We would sort of talk back and forth. And then what I want to do from there is start to crystallize in the future. What does the next step look like? And again, so I, I think one of the things that people get wrong about development is a lot of us think that we, um, we're where we are right now. We are going to become something else. And then the credits will roll and we'll live happily ever after. You know what I mean? Like I do. a lot of us are like, I, I see so, okay, so I'll just pause here for a second. Let me jump to veterinarians for a second. I will talk to these vet students, right? And they're in their last year of vet school and they are completely paralyzed deciding, am I gonna do an internship or am I gonna do a residency? And, or is there an internship or am I gonna go directly into GP? And they just eat themselves alive trying to figure out, am I gonna do this? Or am I gonna do that? And the truth is, 
it doesn't matter that much. And I know that because I've surveyed thousands of veterinarians and I said two questions. Did you do an internship, yes or no? Are you happy with your decision, yes or no? And I found that 97% of people who did an internship are happy with their decision. And 95% of people who did not do an internship are happy with their decision. And so my takeaway is for the most part, it's probably gonna work out for you just fine. But here's the thing, you're going to do an internship and then you're gonna decide what you're gonna do after that. Or you're gonna go into GP and you're gonna be a, a brand new vet. And then you're gonna decide what you're gonna do after that. But guys, you're all signing one year contracts. And that's all it is, it's a one year contract. As you said, you were gonna do this, we're gonna do it for a year and we're gonna see how it goes. And that's all it is. But there's so much pressure we put on ourselves of I am committing to being this thing that I will then be forever. And this is not how it works. And so when we talk about this, and one of the reasons I like is to say, let's, let's talk about what success for you looks like in the, uh, at the end of a year. One year from now, we're sitting together and we're talking and things are going great. What does that look like in your mind? And, I, like, and that's how I start to frame it up. Yeah. And it's because it's fairly low stakes. I'm not saying what are you going to be when you grow up. I'm saying what are you going to be one year from now? It's a fairly small step, but it's still a step in the right direction. And then also we'll start to talk about it. And sometimes I'll say, hey, I really see you doing exceptionally well in this way. I, I really see this for you. And they're not totally convinced. They're like, I don't, you know, I don't know. And I'll say, how about this? Let's try this for a year. Let's go in this direction. Let's work on these skills. And then at the end of the year, you can say, you know what, that's not really, I didn't love it that much. Let's think about something else or let's kind of circle back around and see what our needs are then. And it's just so much nicer to not push people to, do, to make a, what seems like a full life commitment. Right. You know what I mean? I do. And so, so you can start that way, but that's the beautiful part about, about vet medicine especially is, you know, I, I, was, I was doing a talk on keeping care affordable and also practicing good medicine and also paying our staff more. And it's kind of feels like this paradoxical thing yeah. of like, how do I pay my staff more and keep care affordable? And the answer is well-leveraged technicians. Is, is technicians practicing at the top of their license? And we have to ship, shift general practitioners up as well. So we need GPs to practice at the top of their license, which means general practices need to probably keep more cases that we're currently referring away. I mean, offer referral. We probably need to hold on to some of those cases, work those cases up. We need to get more comfortable doing surgery that is appropriate for us to do. But we as doctors need to be working more at the top of our license. And that allows our technicians to work at the top of their license. And it keeps care down for pet owners because they're getting services. But instead of a doctor that charges, say, $75, $80 an hour, they're working with a technician who charges $30, $35 an hour. And we're able to make those, uh, those things make economic sense because we have different care providers doing it. And so we have to make that, we have to start to make that shift. When we look at how we make that shift, when we look at some of the things, we're just gonna take the technicians, for example, um, the ability to have technicians doing uh, physical therapy, therapy rehabilitation is huge. Um, the uh, fluorescent light derm treatments, the, like fovea, things like that, for example, our technicians can do that. Um, if anybody's done teleguidance ultrasound, where you where you do the ultrasound and the ultrasound tech says, turn your hand this way or tilt it that way or blah, blah, blah. There's no reason for our doctors to do that. Like we can, but, but your technicians can do that. And boy, if they do it three, four times a day for seven weeks, 10 weeks, six months, they're going to get pretty darn good at it pretty fast. And now we've got technicians in our practice doing ultrasounds 
And those are cases that we're working up at the general practice level. And it works and it makes sense like that. But the sky's the limit really about what we want to do. I worked with a practice in New York and I went up there and uh, I met a technician who was there and she loved rehab and the idea of physical therapy and rehab. And she had to push and push and push on the practice owners to get a chance to do it. And finally they gave her a closet at the back of the practice where she could keep her stuff. And that was about five years ago. When I went up there, they were clearing land to build her a building next to the practice because she had blown the whole service up like that. And when people were doing surgery at the practice, they were getting rehabilitation tied on to that surgery of, hey, we're gonna come out, we've got you in for some rehab sessions and things like that. 100% technician driven. But man, you talk about the ability, is, is that an engaged person in your practice? Absolutely. They got multiple technicians now in rehab and she's managing and leading because she went from the, the provider up to overseeing these other people, but she's still, she's got this mixture of leading something she believes in and also still getting her hands on it. But I mean, that's, that's success. That's, that's what's amazing. The pride that I see in technicians that, that do ultrasound, like this is what I do and this is the value that I bring. And you know, the reports come out and go to the doctors, but this is something that I have trained myself in, in a year or two years. That, that's what I'm talking about, but it's not necessarily certification. Like you can do a VTS, you can go and get a, a specialty, but and a lot of times I don't think that's necessarily what you need. It's really about what, does your, what do you want your experience and practice to be? And then what do you need to have that experience? I think a lot of us, first of all, we wrestle with imposter syndrome and we're like, I'm not qualified to do this, but if I had a piece of paper or if I sat in a class, then I would be qualified. And I can tell you in my experience, that emotion doesn't go away. I see a lot of people who go and they do the class and they're still scared, they're still scared. And I see other people who say, I'm gonna train myself and see if I can do it and work through it and they, and they do it. But in one way or another, I, I think a lot of times it's about choosing what you want to know and then making a plan, an intentional plan on how to get there and setting some waypoints of this is, we're gonna get to this level and then we're gonna get to this level and then we're gonna get to this level. So I don't know if I answered your question. I, I sort of hope I did, but like that's, that's kind of where I see those paths going and what they look like. Yeah, no, that absolutely answers my question. And I guess I see it as like a joint project between upper, you know, whether it's practice owner, practice manager and technician kind of working together to say, you know, what, what are our practice values? What do we want to accomplish? And what do you want to accomplish? What do you like? And then working together to kind of find that common goal. When you, when you put it out in a talk like this, like, it's like, of course, that makes tons of sense. What do you think the roadblocks have been to making this a reality in a lot of scenarios so far? Yeah. So that's, oh man, that's such a good question. So there's, there's a lot of different roadblocks. Uh, one of the big ones is, is a lack of, of creativity or a lack of willingness to sit and say, where do we want to be in a year? And just being intentional about Not it. what do you want to be when you grow up? Exactly right. Not what yeah. you want to be, just, just what, what does success in a year look like? And I think a lot of times we don't ask ourselves the right questions. And so, um, I, I think, I think people, again, I, I don't think it's a failing as much as we're all just busy. And we're all just trying to get through the day as fast as we can. And we, you know, you know how it is. Um, when you look at like financial planning or end of life planning or things like that, it's not, it's not exciting stuff. And nobody wants to spend their day and sit down and think about the future necessarily when we're all busy right now. But all that stuff does pay off in a, in a big way. And it's the same thing. You have to have somebody who wants to be intentional about where they're going as opposed to reacting. I think one of the big problems with vet medicine is it's, it's, if, you, if you let it be what it is, you will always be reacting. 
You know what I mean? Vet medicine does not follow the schedule. It doesn't matter what's on the appointment schedule. That's not what you're gonna end up seeing at the end of the day. Like what you see, I stopped looking at the appointment schedule the day ahead of time a long time ago because <laughs> it never represented what my day was gonna be like. And it's because you're just reacting. And so if you just show up and take that medicine as it comes, you're always reacting. Freedom, if you want to be free, if you want to be able to go home and be home at the end of the day and be like disconnected, you that only comes from intention. It only comes from looking ahead and saying, what is the plan? What is what do I want, what do I want my life to be like? Because if you don't have that thought, then you always end up going, well, this is just what happened to me. Right. And now this is where I am. And so anyway, I, I think I think that lack of intentionality is a really big one. I think uh, systematically, culturally, the fact that most of us didn't get trained or developed that way means it never even occurs to us to try to train or develop someone underneath us that way. You know what I mean? Like I most of us got tossed in sink or swim and that's all that we know. And so we toss the next person in or sink or swim because that's what we did. And I think some of us kind of feel like, well, I did this way, so you should have to do this way. But I don't think most of us do. I really do think that most of us just go, this is the only way I know. And so we learn from being tossed in ourselves and we learn from having a horrible experience with a bad boss. And you're like, I'm never doing that to somebody else. And those are like the main drivers in how we know how to train people or grow people. So I think those are big ones. I think the other thing that I think too is, uh, I think a lot of us wait for permission and we wait and we say, well, no one has come to me and told me that I have this potential, that I could be amazing in this way. And so I'm gonna keep kind of doing what I'm doing now until someone shows up and tells me I'm good enough to grow myself or develop myself. And I think it takes a certain type of person to go, I don't care. I, you know, I, I, love, I love behavior and I am going to go on Vetfolio and just take behavior CE and I'm gonna talk about it in the exam room. I'm gonna start working on it. I'm gonna to try to get the practice manager to let me do virtual behavior consults for our practice because I love it. And I would just, let me have a, just a couple of clients to get started. Let me try it. And a lot of people just, they don't know that they don't have to wait for permission that they can advocate for themselves. And, uh, and they also don't know if they, if they advocate for themselves and they say, I wanna do this. And the manager goes, you know, I, I, no, we're not gonna right. do that. They don't know they can go somewhere else. This is true. And so, I mean, again, it's, it's sort of a shifting worldview, but all of those things I, I think are things that are obstacles to people. Um, and, but, but they can, they can all be navigated. It's just, uh, I don't know. It's just, you, you just, you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that you are capable of learning and growing and being better. And, and you, you have to, you want it. I think a lot of us have to, we have to push to advocate for ourselves. Right. And a lot of people are not comfortable with that. And then I think as leaders, we have to stop and say, it doesn't matter that this wasn't how I was developed. It wouldn't matter that I didn't have these resources. These resources are existing now. And I want the people that I, that I lead to have a better experience, a smoother, faster development than I had and, and make that happen. But it just, it requires the intentionality. That makes a lot of sense. Two things kind of came to mind listening to you. One, just thinking from my own experience, like fear of failure, you know, to say like, oh, I'm going to do this. But now that I said I'm going to do that, now I really actually have to do it. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Because I, I know, you know, that's been a roadblock to me in times in my life. And I hope I'm not the only one out there. <laughs> on, on fear of failure? Fear of failure. The other thing that I thought about, well, I'll hold that. I'll hold the next one I thought about. I'd love to hear your thoughts on like that. If I put it out there, then I have to deliver and what if I can't what if it's not what I thought it was yeah you know, kind of that so, mentality oh man so I think um so I so let me tell you two stories if that's okay so the first story I, I told these stories in one of my lectures earlier here at VMX and that's why these are top of my mind but um 
The, the first one's called The Sword of Damocles. Have you heard The Sword of Damocles story? I feel like I have, but Maybe. remind me. So, okay, so The Sword of Damocles, the idea is there's this guy named Damocles, and he goes to the king, and the king is Dionysus III, and Damocles goes to Dionysus, and he says, man, you're in such a great place. You've got this awesome stuff. I wish I was the king. I wish I had the power that you do. Man, you've got it made. This is just such a cool thing you have. I would be so, oh, it'd be so amazing to be you. And the king kind of looks at Damocles and finally says, you want to you wanna, you wanna be the king, Damocles? And Damocles says, absolutely. And the king says, all right, come back here tomorrow, and you're going to sit on the throne, and you can be king for a day. We'll trade places. And Damocles is like, yeah. And so he goes away. And he comes back, and the next day it is as the king says. And so Damocles sits on the throne, and everyone does what Damocles says. But there's always a catch, right? And so over the night, the king went, and he took a sword, and he hung it by the hilt, so the blade was pointing down, and he hung it over the throne by a single horse's hair. And the sword just dangled there over Damocles' head. And Damocles just could not take it. The idea that this sword was hanging over his head. He couldn't, he did not enjoy anything as this sword dangled over his head. And finally he just cracks and he's like, I take it back. I don't want this. I don't want to sit in this chair. I, I want to, I want to trade back. And he traded back. And the idea with the sword of Damocles is the king said, that is what it's like to have power is you have this sword dangling over your head. And so if you ever hear someone talk about uh, she has the sword of Damocles over her head, it means it's this feeling of this sword over her head. And when I read that story originally, I felt that so much because I think so many of us practice with the sword of Damocles over our head. It's this idea that disaster could strike at any moment, that there was, yes, I have power. Yes, I have knowledge. Yes, I can do great things, but you don't understand how badly these things could go or how disastrous this could be. And that, that, that fear, it is so pervasive in our, in our practices, in our culture. It drives so, we can't make a mistake. We can't make an error. And it's cultivated in how we're trained in vet schools and tech schools. Like we are perfectionists, but perfectionism is driven by fear. And so there's so much fear that just drives our profession. And I think that that's a real problem. And so I think a lot of us are driven by the sword of Damocles. So what's the alternative to the Sword of Damocles? I went um, on vacation to Nova Scotia this last year with my, with my wife and my daughters. And so we went up to Nova Scotia, we were gonna hike and camp and backpack. And before we went, my wife said to me, I desperately wanna see a moose. I like, I have never seen a moose. I would kill to see a moose. And I was like, you know what, baby? I, we are gonna find you a moose. And so we flew up there and we got a rental minivan and I got the kids together and I was like, kids, we have one mission while we're up here and it's to find your mother a moose. <laughs> and they were like, let's do it. And so we went to work hiking and camping and finding this moose. And we popped up early because the moose are uh, out first thing in the morning. And so we're out and we're hiking in the morning before breakfast. And then we're <laughs> staying out and we're hiking after dinner because we read somewhere that that's moose o'clock when the sun is going down. And so, and we were like, we'd hike past people on the trail and be like, hey, do you see any moose? And when they would be, no, or, or I saw some footprints or whatever. We talked to everybody we saw. We asked every park ranger where the best place was to see the moose. When we drove, we took shifts so that someone was always scanning the tree line <laughs> as the other person drove to make sure if there was any moose like standing in the forest by the road, we would see them. And for 10 days, we looked for that moose 24 seven 
And at the end of the vacation, you know how many moose we saw? I'm gonna go with none. Not one. <laughs> Absolutely zero moose. And so we came back and I came to realize two things on that trip. The first one is that moose are not real. They are fake. <laughs> they were- They are unicorns. They were, not, they were created by the park service and Canadians. To, to lure us into remote places. And I always had a suspicion. That hashtag moose truth. That's, <laughs> that's what it is. And so just know, like, so, you know how some people think the moon landing was faked? Yeah. That's moose. It's, the moon it's landing, moose. totally yeah. real. So moose on the other the hand? The moose, exactly. No. But I yeah. understand how those people feel now <laughs> because I get it. But it says number one, <laughs> moose are not real. Number two is everybody should have a moose. Everybody should have a thing that you're like, I'm going to find this. I'm looking for this. I will get out of bed to go and find this moose. And I will do one extra hike at night because I really want to find that moose. And the difference between the sword of Damocles and having a moose is everything about how you see practice and how you see life. You don't have to be motivated by fear. You don't have to have the sword of Damocles hanging over you and you're worried. What if it doesn't work? What if it fails? It'll be catastrophic. What if you see a moose? What if you go and you find it? What if it's there? What if it's everything that you hope it is? The worst case that happens is you go and you look and you know what happened? You know what my, how my vacation turned out? It's the best vacation of my life because we did all the stuff, because we talked to all the people, we went all the places because we were together and we had something to talk about. But you can make practice that way, but you have to have the moose that you're looking for. And so when you start to think about the fear of failure as the decision of it, am I gonna be motivated by the sword of Damocles and I'm worried if I move and catastrophe will fall upon me or are you going to get out of bed and say we're going to find a moose today and even if we don't like what we find we're still going to go looking you know we're going to go out we're going to see what's out there and maybe we'll see it and maybe we won't but we're going because I want to find I want to see if we can find a moose and so I, I know that that's kind of a silly way to answer your question about what do we do about this fear of failure part of it is you have to decide what your moose is and the moose is what makes failure worth it, you know? And it's, it's, it's that focus, it's that perspective shift. But I think everybody should have a moose. I don't think that was a silly way to answer it at all. I think we all learned a little bit about moose here today. About moose or the <laughs> lack thereof. The lack thereof, moose truth. It makes me think of um, like Dale Carnegie, the, you know, just he has how to stop worrying and start living. And yeah. one of his principles is, you know, accept the worst case scenario, just right off the bat, decide like, okay, what does this look like if it fails and accept that like that is a real possibility and what is that going to do to you? Yeah. And that has been really helpful for me to say like, okay, let's say this whole thing blows up in my face like that. I'm, you know, putting myself mentally in that position. And most of the time I'm like, okay, I could, I could deal with that. That's okay. There's, there's benefit to having terrible experiences. And I know that sounds silly, but it's true. Those horrible clients that chew you out and they're awful the one benefit to it is after you've been chewed out a couple of times, the fear of being chewed out kind of goes away because I've been chewed out before. You <laughs> I've know? seen worse than this. And it's exactly right. And you go, oh, I've been worse than this. I, <laughs> I'll tell you a slightly inappropriate story, but I was, uh, I was, I was speaking yesterday and this, uh, this young lady flagged me down before I started and I went over and I said, yeah. And she said, do you remember Texas A&M? And I said, were you there? And she was like, yeah. <laughs> I threw up on stage at Texas A&M's College of Vet Medicine one time. Uh, I went, I got food poisoning and I went and I was lecturing to the students and all of a sudden I got really hot and like I felt sweat pop out on my back. 
And I stopped and I said, guys, I'm just gonna be honest with you. I, I may have gotten some food poisoning. So if I have to leave, and they were all, they all thought it was a, a bit. They were like, where's he, where's he going with this story? <laughs> and uh, I said, if I have to leave, that's why. Actually, where is the restroom? <laughs> and they all pointed in the same time. And right then I just, I threw up. And so I slapped my hands over my mouth and I turned and I run towards the restroom. And this guy in the front row goes, turn off your microphone. <laughs> and so I'm trying to get my microphone. So it was a horrible experience. It was the worst thing ever. But the bit, the bit of, and she was there and she was like, I was there. And, uh, and the, but the shining light around it is whenever I feel insecure about going and talking to people or whenever I feel unprepared, I look at myself in the mirror and go, it won't be as bad as Texas. And, and, then, I, and then I go, you know, but it's that like, it's this, this horrible thing. So I think that that's a big part of it. I didn't exercise one time. Because I, I was, I was, I was kind of, I, I was kind of wrestling with some existential dread, sort of Damocles, over my head, right? And I took a time, I took some time, and I sort of came up with this exercise myself, but it really worked well. And I wrote down in a journal all of the times that I thought that things were going to go or could go catastrophically bad. I wrote down all the times in my life I was really worried, or I thought things would could be potentially terrible. And I wrote down in one column all the times that I thought that they could be potentially terrible and they actually were terrible. And I wrote down all the times that I thought they'd be terrible and they worked out okay. And the truth is I had nothing on the first page and everything on the second page. All the times that I thought this could be really bad and it worked out okay. That was a long list. And there was nothing on the other list. And I just, for me, that, that really made the point. And I will look back at it every now and then and be like, these are all the times I was afraid. And they worked out just fine. And even if you've got one or two on the times you were afraid and it didn't work out okay, I promise you that list of the times it did work out are so much bigger. And that was just, it was something I just kind of stumbled onto playing around with, but that really did something to reset my perspective. Absolutely. Well, and even if it doesn't work out the way that you foresaw it working out, the way that you planned it, that, that you didn't follow your path, a lot of times it still works out okay, even if it doesn't look like how it was supposed to look when you started absolutely. out. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it's, um, it's funny. We, we set these expectations about what is going to be, and I know I'm not the only one who sets expectations that are always at some polar extreme. Mm -hmm. It's either this is a, a amazing success, you know, or this is a complete and total failure. And in my life, every single time it has been somewhere in between. But when I think about things and imagine things, I imagine the worst scenario and the best scenario. And then I jump back and forth between those two. Very rarely do I imagine something that's in the middle, but I've gotten much better about that in my forties. I've got, I just, I've gotten a lot better at looking and saying, well, what is the worst thing that could happen? And I think that's, that's actually a, a healthy thing is to say, this is catastrophic. And then what is the best thing that could happen? What if it's amazing? And then what's a, what's a realistic in between? And honestly, that exercise in itself usually helps me to come out with a, a fairly realistic, you know, point where it's probably, it's probably gonna end up. Yes, I feel like I've learned this so much from watching my daughter, who is poor thing. She's my mini me. Like, I feel so bad for her. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she has that same perfectionist personality that I'm going to guess there's probably a few people out there who can relate to that. And, you know, so I watch her and she, you know, if it's not perfect, then it's a failure. And I'm yes. like, no, it's not. It's not a failure. And 
watching her has taught me to give myself grace and say, okay, well, if it's okay for her, it's okay for the rest of us as well, that it's not if perfection or failure. One of the things that helped me a lot in this is somewhere along the way, I aspired to talk to myself the way I would talk to my employees or to my team. And man, I say things to myself I would never say to someone I worked with, like absolutely never say. And I will say it to myself. And just the idea that, Andy, you would not say that to someone who you were trying to lead or manage. And so don't not say it to yourself. And that was, that's been something that's been really healthy because it, one of my longtime friends has this saying, um, you know, I would, I would say something to her like, oh, I'm an idiot. And she would say, don't say that about my friend. And I love that she would interject that and don't, don't say that about my friend. And I interjected that because it, it would make me stop and recognize that I was using self-talk and I yeah. was not being fair to myself or kind to my fellow self. You know, it's, it's funny, I'm seeing a, a rise in people who are reading about stoicism. And when I started reading about stoicism, this idea of, of and basically it's kind of focusing on the, the problem is the path forward, is if there's something that makes us uncomfortable, we should focus on that problem. What is that problem? What is in my control? What can I do about this? And sort of how do I address to, uh, challenges head on and move forward? And so that's sort of stoicism in a, in a very sloppy nutshell. But, but basically, you know, when I thought about stoicism, I kind of imagined it was sort of being mean to yourself and suck it up and things like that. But one of the key tenets of stoicism is self-love and self-grace and to say, I'm going to treat myself as well as I would treat my best friend. And I'm gonna give myself the grace that I would give to my spouse or to my friend. And I thought that that was really interesting that you would have this very problem-focused philosophy, but behind it is not be hard on yourself. It is be kind to yourself so that you can focus on this problem and and be okay. And, yeah. and, and I don't know, I just, I think that that's, I think that's really important. I, I don't think that we give ourselves nearly enough grace. I think, I think that's sort of the flip side of the coin. I think a lot of us beat ourselves up. And I think we also look at other people to tell us that we're doing a good job. And I think that's really a toxic combination of I'm going to be as hard on myself as possible. And I'm also not going to be happy unless other people tell me that I'm good. My clients tell me I'm good. My staff tells me that I'm yeah. good. And I'm going, good God, man. You're giving all the power to be happy to other people, and then you're also cracking this nasty whip on yourself the whole time. What, what are we doing? Right. But, I, but it's such a common philosophy. I just, I really think we need to uh, think a lot about what success looks like for us as individuals. And then we need to be kind to ourselves, and we need to talk to ourselves the way that we would try to talk to our children, right? I love my kids, and I want them to be successful. And I, I, I tell my kids when I need them to change or, you know, um, I try to give them honest feedback and make them really good people. But boy, I, I should try to talk to myself with the kindness that I talk to my children. And I hold my children accountable and I coach my children and I support my children. And I tell my children when I'm disappointed and, and, and I expect better from them. Why don't I communicate with myself? Why don't I hold myself to those standards with that grace or with that support or with that love? And so anyway, but, but I think a lot of us, wrestle with that and um again I, I think we're some of us are so driven and we've just bought in so much to being perfect in the outcomes that we achieve that we're just become these nasty taskmasters to ourselves and yeah. I, I think it's a it's something we have to address as on an individual level but um I, I i really do think that we can get there i think most of us learn along the way at some point you know we kind of put our hands up and say this isn't this isn't worth it something will come 
and it will change your perspective and it will show you what's really important. And I think that a lot of us get that adjustment at some point in our life and go, oh, I've been really stressing out about things that were maybe not the things I needed to be uh, terrified of. Yeah, when you really think about what's important. Yeah, I can relate to that negative self-talk very deeply. Um, I have to get up an hour before the rest of my family because I'm not nice in the morning. <laughs> and I can't interact with people kindly until I've been up for an hour and had a cup of coffee. So sometimes I'll find myself, I'll wake up in that time and I'm, I'm stressed out. My head's already spinning. By the time yeah. my feet hit the ground, I'm like, oh, all this stuff and everything. And then I'll, you know, I'll sit down and I'm drinking my coffee. It turns out I'm also not nice to myself in mm. the morning, but I'll have these thoughts. And then you know, every now and again, it'll strike me. I'm like, of course I'm stressed out. Of course my head is spinning. Like, listen to how I'm talking to myself yeah. and how mean I'm being. <laughs> like, I would, like you said, I would never be this mean to, to an employee, to my children, to a friend. And so why would it ever be okay for me to talk to myself like this? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's pervasive. I, I think a lot of us are that way. Yes. Obviously, we could sit here for like, you know, all evening and chat about all of this. So I will wrap it up by just asking any final thoughts you want to share with everybody. No, I, I, well, I'll, I'll say this. I love our profession. I love that medicine. I am really optimistic about the future, Cassie. I, I really am. I think, I think change is scary. And there has never been a time in vet medicine where things have changed as much as they're changing right now. And I think that's terrifying. But guys, I really do believe that there's a bright future on the other side. Is it going to be catastrophic? Is it going to be perfect? No, it's going to be the thing in the middle. But I just... Um, I really do think that we're headed for a good place and for bright days ahead. And I just, um, yeah, I just, I, I love what we do. And, and just the amount of innovation that we're seeing in our profession now, as far as treatments and diagnostics and just, um, it's unprecedented. And so I think we have a choice to make about how we feel we can be terrified because change is scary or we can, uh, or we can lean in and decide that we're going to be excited about what comes out the other side. At the end, we choose if we stand under the sword of Damocles or we go searching for the moose. And I think it's a fascinating time to find a moose that you care about and go look for it. I love it. I love it. And I do, um, just as we wrap up here, I do want to point back to your certificate one more time. Um, yeah. Promise I'm not being paid point back at your certificate. <laughs> so yeah, it's the, but it's a really good, uh, you know, mainly from the standpoint of as I went through the lectures, you know, I'm somebody who wants to give that productive feedback and to help grow people in the roles that they're sure. in. Um, but I don't know how to do that effectively, maybe because of, you know, the experiences that I've had, maybe because I've just never been taught how to do it the right way. So that I just want to point back to it and say, you know, it you. was, I found it really insightful to say, oh, this is what I want to accomplish, but I don't know how to give me good techniques to, to, accomplish those goals. Like we, it, it's been years and years and years of, of working on it. When, it. when I made it, I really did want to make it for anybody who leads or manages other people. Where I've seen people snatch it up immediately is especially people who, um, who are new leaders and they say, I do, I've never had any management or leadership training and mm -hmm. I need something to help me figure out how to say this or right. how to tell people or how to ask them for things without them getting defensive. It's just those types of basic things that are absolutely critical in success. No one trained you how to do it. So it's, I see a lot of new leaders and I see a lot of other people who maybe the manager or the, or the medical director or the owner is looking at them and saying, I think this person has a lot of potential, but I don't know how to support them as I give them more opportunities to, to move into leadership or decision-making or management. And they say, aha, this is, this is great. It's, it's eight hours. They can work through it on their phone when, you know, over is in like 
five minute pieces so you can work through it. And those are those are the people though, the brand new the new leaders and the and the people who are moving into leadership, they get it right away. They yeah. want it, they grab it. But those have been the people who have who have been the early adopters for sure. Well, it's a great program, and I'm glad that we, we got the chance to talk about all of this. This has been a fantastic talk, as always, um, but I'm glad we got to bring that up, too, because I think it is a really good resource out there. Well, thank you. What more is there to say after a talk like that other than thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to Dr. Andy Rourke for such an insightful conversation. Thank you to everybody who showed up and joined us in the expo hall at VMX and to all of you out there who are tuning in now. So happy to have you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. I have no idea how algorithms work, but I hear it will allow other veterinary professionals to find this and other great content that we have out there. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.